This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. How many of you carry cash? Don't worry, I'm not asking for donations. But I am suggesting that one day in the not-too-distant future, digital payments will entirely displace cash as the primary means of exchange. Why am I so sure? Take a trip to China. Well, maybe not now, but soon, like after the threat of the coronavirus fades. There, you'll see everyone from billionaire property magnate to street vendor using smartphones, not cash, to fulfill every consumption desire. So-called digital wallets are all the rage, accounting for 54% of all China e-commerce sales, which in turn represents $620.5 billion of a booming $1.2 trillion marketplace. Super apps, created and supported by Chinese behemoths like Alibaba and WeChat, capture QR codes with the swipe of a smartphone, making payments quick, smooth, and seamless. In less than 20 years, China has risen to become the world's digital vanguard. It now leads the world in digital payments, and with only 56% smartphone penetration, there's still lots of upside. The reason for China's rapid adoption of digital payments is threefold. For starters, smartphones have been the primary means of accessing the internet for most mainlanders. They have a level of comfort with smartphones that's unrivaled by consumers elsewhere. Second, credit cards came late to the market, creating a leapfrog opportunity for digital wallets. And third, Chinese consumers, for better or for worse, don't harbor the same fears of digital fraud as their Western counterparts. The China experience is not lost on other rapidly developing markets. India is quickly following suit, along with much of Southeast Asia, Latin America, and the African subcontinent. Here to speak about this digital payments revolution is Kerry Hornfeld, a self-styled digital payments expert. He's an advisor to Bain & Company and consultant to an ever-growing fintech community in Asia and beyond. Based in Singapore, Kerry sees growing enthusiasm for digital payments. Regulators are relaxing rules, making way for new entrants, while merchants contemplate ways to drive sales across new payment platforms. The only real loser in this payments frenzy is cash, and no one seems too sad to see it go. I asked Kerry to break it down for us. So I'm here with Kerry Hornfeld, and this is a conversation I'd been wanting to have for a while about uh, fintech, but specifically digital payments, which can feel like kind of a, uh, a obscure topic, but you're going to break it down for us, aren't you? I absolutely do my best, and I'm very flattered that I'm the one that you've chose to have this conversation with. I couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with, so thanks, thanks for joining. This is um, one of those subjects which keeps popping up in the news. You see it in reports, you see it in news articles, uh, everyone's talking about the excitement and the jazz around fintech. Um, and then I think about what we're really talking about, which is payments, digital payments. And I don't know if I'm like everybody else, but I have cash and I have credit cards. What in the world? do we need digital payments for? Well, that's a very, very good question. So there is, uh, uh, and I don't think this is specific to the payments industry, but we do have a bit of a reputation for creating our own problems and then trying to solve them. Uh, you know, that's what keeps me in, uh, you know, in, uh, in diapers, as they say. Uh, so essentially, the payments industry targets one thing in particular, it actually targets cash. The best iterations of digital solutions tend to focus on doing that, creating a cash-like experience. The things that we worry about, the things that keep us up at night, are things like concerns about anti-money laundering, security, protection, 
if you think about how you use cash, there really is none of that. You know, you are individually responsible for the money in your wallet, right? The currency in your wallet, wherever you are in the world. It's not a particularly safe uh, mode of, uh, of payment. It can be stolen. It can be uh, duplicated. We in the payment space think digital payments is a much more safe, secure solution, and we collectively look to secure it rather than relying on the individual to do it themselves. I think digital payments goes the next step and looks really principally at how to create a solution that is ubiquitous, prolific, um, adopts multiple modes of payment into a central solution and still secures it all in a very, very robust way. Using the smartphone. Well, so that, of course, is one method. So the, the, uh, when we talk about digital payments, um, you know, some of the companies that I've worked for in the past have coined technologies uh, or uh, uh, terms like uh, digital by default. Um, but the intention really is, and I think Generation Z will have an expectation that however they want to pay, whenever they want to pay, that device, that form factor must have that capability. You know, look at some of the innovations that are, you know, on the horizon. Your car having essentially embedded payments in it so that you go through a, a, a turnstile, you go to a petrol station, you go through a drive through restaurant, payments is embedded in your vehicle. You don't have to think about pulling out a, a, any kind of a form factor. It's there. So the reality is, is that any device potentially could be a payment device. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, pay, uh, the payments industry, obviously that would be uh, a brilliant uh, innovation on our part. But like everything, um, uh, are, is it overly complicated now in order to at some point arrive at a point of consolidation and simplicity? So the answer is probably that it's, it's simple and complicated. So the solutions themselves are fairly elegant and simple. The problem is the technology. There isn't a single provider that's delivering all of this in a consolidated solution. And in fact, that's one of the things that the industry is looking at right now is consolidation of technology. So what you have is a many layered solution and, and it's very cumbersome. In fact, what you're seeing, even at the top end of the market, the large players are all starting to, to merge and consolidate now because of this. They want to become consolidated solution providers. They want to be one-stop shops. You know, this is the thing. I, I, when I last saw you, uh, you were on stage facilitating a discussion among four or five. Uh, in fact, I think two of them were the, the stand, uh, standard uh, credit card organizations. But then you had three or four others who were startup digital payment organizations. And I sat there listening, wondering how many different ways do I need to buy a bowl of noodles? What, what do you, what's your answer to that? And why should I care as a consumer, as a user? Uh, what, a, what a brilliant question. So, you know, I think this goes back to, again, my earlier statement about us creating problems and solving them. The, there's lots of space for multiple players to survive. Personally, one of the terminologies that the payment space has adopted, this whole concept of disruption, it's not a terminology I'm, in, I'm tremendously in favor of. Whatever happened with good old-fashioned innovation, and more importantly, collaboration, um, one of the things that a lot of folks in the payment space forget about is the source of funds. Mm. For the foreseeable future, that's going to be banks, no matter how you slice it. And whether you're a digital bank or not, if you don't have a, a, a regulator acknowledging you as an, a deposit-taking institution, you're not going to be able to support the fintech industry, bar none. And even if you are, you'll be limited by 
domestic regulation uh, and maybe even international regulation. But just sort of to get back to your point, the reality is, is it isn't so much about the number of different payment types. It's about differentiating those payment types. Now, so there are some minimum requirements that digital solutions, let's call a spade a spade, digital wallets uh, require. Um, on the technology side itself, they need to be well connected so that um, if I provision a payment product, card, uh, stored value solution, whatever it is, to that wallet, it's something that I can use prolifically. There's ubiquity in that solution. The other is um, that you have um, the ability to provision as many payment products as possible. Um, what that does, and I think that the, the, this is a step that's sort of missing in the industry right now, what that does is it creates an opportunity very similar to the one that exists in the card space right now, which is the issuers of payment products, principally banks, but of course there are some non-banks and digital banks in the space, um, differentiate at the product level, not at the technology level, not at the network level. Those differentiations, when, when we've looked at, for instance, some of the schemes differentiating their contactless technology or um, not being as well connected domestically, internationally, those actually are hindrances to the industry. Those are the things that stop scale, which is the biggest concern in the industry, and, and interoperability. Those two things, if they're not there, will will completely hamper the, the, the adoption of any payments technology. Well, let's talk a little bit about that differentiation. So with the credit cards, my experience has been, well, it's either uh, the, 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 the kind of um, uh, popularity of a card, um, its look, its feel, is it a gold, is it a platinum, is it a green? Uh, that's one thing. So it's there's a prestige aspect. And the second thing feel, feels to be a rewards. How many rewards, how many frequent flyer miles do I get for using this? Or what else can I purchase with this card beyond using it to? And, and that's it. And, 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 and people made their decisions and there were many, many options available and all the banks exploited that whenever they could with promotions. That was kind of the beginning of the end. Is it, Did I miss anything? No. I and, and I would argue that in, in Asia in particular, that's a problematic thing. So, so the affluent proposition on a lot of credit cards, for instance, has been, well, minimized because almost everybody gets a platinum card in, uh, in, uh, in Asia, right? So what does that do to the, you know, the affluent proposition if, you're, if your baseline is platinum, right? North America is a little better. It's a little bit harder to get uh, a gold card or a platinum card in North America. So they've tried to retain uh, the, um, the affluent proposition there. Also, uh, there's a little bit to do with things like how well-established credit bureaus are, you know, in Asia and a lot of markets here, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, it's very common for people to have multiple cards in their wallets, mm -hmm. right? So your differentiation product to product is more about the merchant proposition. So which card gives me the best discount in which location? Um, I think the challenge that the card manufacturer, the card issuers have is true differentiation. So why this card at this bank versus this card at this bank. Um, obviously, it's been a long time since you, your bank that you, you, know, you deposit your funds with was where you principally had your credit card. Now we have cards from all different banks. So the banks are very challenged. And this is even more the case in the digital space. I, there are very few, and I can't even think of any off the top of my head right now, 
uh, uh, digital propositions where the financial institutions, the issuers, the non-financial institution issuers, are actually differentiating their products specifically focused on digital purchase, con digital content, uh, what have you. I mean, you know, obviously Apple's come out with their own card, but that's very self-serving. Well, well, that's where my are the point. other guys? Yeah, well, that's, that's my point. It feels like digital payments feels even less obvious to me as to why there's a need to move in that direction, with the exception of the idea it's ease of use. So if you think about that merchant encounter, it typically has been cash or credit. And the only differentiator at that merchant level is American Express or Visa or MasterCard. And if I pull out the American Express, they say- domestic payments, of course. Or, sorry, say or, that again. Or some of the domestic options. Right? Yeah, of course. But I mean, generally, generally, just, an, and then the American Express, well, we don't accept American Express because they have this extra fee and we'll have to pass it on to you. Well, okay. So that, that's kind of the, the scenario. And I know we're being, we're being very kind of base about this right now because there's so much more that goes on with the future of payments. But the idea is if you're trying to fill a gap and a gap exists in the market, what the hell is that gap? And it, with, the, with the exception of simplicity of use, tapping versus signing, and that's it, unless you can tell me something more. Um, so I think it, there is a ubiquity. There's two components, right? So the industry will tell you that um, one significant component is financial inclusion. So um, a card has a bunch of rules around its issuance, and one of them is income. So conceivably, a digital solution with an alternative payment embedded, but still having similar ubiquity to uh, a card product because the merchant acceptance has been developed. So that goes back to that prolificity we talked about earlier, um, means more people potentially have the opportunity to make payments at merchants that they may previously not been able to access or they'd only have been able to pay cash for. You know, um, Now, there's also the uh, um, cross-border business, the international purchase side of the business. So what we're also seeing, of course, is a uh, blurring of the lines between uh, what was originally called e-commerce, but of course is now digital commerce, and traditional brick-and-mortar face-to-face business. So you're seeing essentially the same technologies crossing both platforms. So now, if I provision a preferred payment product to a digital wallet, I have the option of making purchases online, digitally and face-to-face -face. and in addition potentially cross-border mm. so that really I think is the principal incentive from the payments industry is we want to make it easier to pe for people to make payments how they choose when they choose whenever they choose and wherever they choose okay so that ubiquity the idea of just being available in him anywhere for any size of payment in any market which which was the initial driving force between behind the international schemes as well, right? right? right. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm previously MasterCard. At one point, I represented something called the MasterCard Network, which is essentially their big switch that interconnected all of their international customers and created the most important component of MasterCard products, which is international ubiquity, mm -hmm. a card that would work the same way in every market or virtually the same way in every market. Okay. So, so let's move looking forward now. Um, you have this opportunity because of technology, because of a willingness of government regulators to allow for, uh, you've got a, a con consumer demand for uh, greater flexibility, uh, more choice in terms of what the services they use and why. What are some of the names of the digital payment services available in the market, both in, in, in North America and in Asia that would be familiar to people? 
<laughs> really good question. I would argue very few. The only ones that probably would stand out would be the ones that do more than just payments. So if you look at companies like Square, for instance, right, which have uh, advanced their or enhanced their solutions to be much more than payments, you know, they started essentially as a digital form factor with a dongle, but now they do a whole inventory management and front-end system that uh, allows a merchant to really set up shop. Mm. Um, so they're front and center. I think that's the key, right? So if, if, if they're purely a technology service provider sitting in the back end, like the first datas of the world, I mean, thinking of large providers of solutions, the FISs of the world, the uh, Adians of the world, these guys, are virtually unknown to the consumers. And quite frankly, why would consumers care? Right. Making a payment is not the reason they wake up in the morning, yeah. right? They, maybe they wake up and think, today I'd like to buy coffee or dinner or car or house, but paying for it is the last thing on their mind and it's a necessary evil more than anything else. But, but there is one that comes to mind for me, which is Alipay. And, and Alipay has been branded so effectively, and this is on the back of Alibaba, as a means of accessing quickly um, their online products and services, uh, which has now been extended to other merchants. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, to be honest, that's not dissimilar than Visa and MasterCard, right? Mm -hmm. So Alipay and Financial is more than just a financial institution and a payment solution. They're a scheme. And when you're a scheme, your brand is everything. So certainly those payment solutions providers, those payments technology companies that also have a brand component are, you know, have a brand behind them. Um, but again, ask someone to differentiate. I, I would argue Ant Financial probably has a differentiation in a couple of fronts. They would say, well, Ant Financial is a Chinese company. Uh, they wouldn't know where it was registered. You know, they wouldn't know, for instance, it's a Hong Kong registered company, not a mainland China registered company. That it's, they may not even know that it's a global, a global phenomenon that exists everywhere in the world, right? They would know that of Visa and MasterCard, but you know, those companies have 50 plus years on mm. Ant Financial. Mm. I mean, the more interesting comment on those companies is what Visa and MasterCard did in, let's say, 60 or 70 years, China Union Pay did in probably 10 to 15 years, and Ant Financial would have, would have done in five years. Isn't it a leapfrogging story in China that there wasn't the pervasiveness of credit cards which allowed for something like Alipay or digital payments to come through faster? So that's a really interesting question. So, you know, the China payments landscape um, clearly is a digital conversation. But... It, I don't know that it was because there, it wasn't the cards weren't prolific, um, because China has had uh, uh, bank accounts for every citizen for a really long time. Uh, so the ability to, for instance, take money out, out of an ATM is quite ubiquitous in China, no matter where you are in the country. I mean, obviously, in, in the remotest remotest parts, you may have some challenges, but that would be the case anywhere. Um, I, I think the the challenge has more to do with, and this is the case in other markets too, like Japan, for instance, has more to do with the relationships that consumers had with their banks, which wasn't good in China. These were major institutions with millions of customers. I mean, you know, when you, want, you have 1.5 billion people, you can imagine what the portfolio of the average bank would look like. A pilot for a payments program in, in China could be 10 million people. I mean, there are country, customer, companies in the world that exist with much smaller portfolios for years. So, I think that relationship was more of the issue than uh, uh, necessarily the products that were available because the international schemes have had 
international scheme products for quite a while. Now, albeit they were focused exclusively on international transactions. So um, if a you, you went to your bank in China as a, as a, as a resident of country uh, and said, I would like a, a Visa or MasterCard, they would say, you can have it, but you can't make any domestic purchases, mm -hmm. but you can buy off of Amazon and what have you. Mm -hmm. If anything, um, outside influence has impacted China. So um, the proliferation of China Union Pay uh, uh, was as a result of wanting to stay competitive with the international schemes to lock this, the international schemes out. Mm -hmm. In order to meet some measure of consumer demand, they had to have similar products. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't think it had to do with the lack of products. I think it had more to do okay. with just that relationship. Would, would it be fair to say that China has set the pace for what digital payments could and should look like? So I would say that's partly true. Um, I think, again, just the sheer size of the domestic market uh, uh, and you know, the wherewithal of some of these institutions that are both government darlings and just domestic favorites, mm. you know, a, a Chinese company is going to have the pulse or should have the pulse of the Chinese people. Mm. So domestically, those solutions are enormous. And when they hit a critical mass, naturally they're going to export mm. and because chinese tourists travel prolifically what you'll first have is merchants creating acceptance of those payment pl uh, programs but but that's not really the measure of success for an ant financial a measure of success for ant financial i mean it's an economic success obviously but it's catering to their customers in the payment space real success comes from when issuers in a domestic market, in a foreign market, are issuing your product. Mm. Uh, and then they get used for domestic use mm. and they become a domestic going concern. Mm. That's when you know you've really made it in those markets. So this is the cross-border play and it's now panning out now. Well, so the issuing side is not there yet. Mm. Um, China Union Pay is still really kind of building on that. Um, you know, it's just kind of funny, right? The other day I read an article that American Express has finally made parity on acceptance, merchant acceptance with, with Visa and MasterCard. And think about how long they've been around. No, it took them forever. For, Why did it take them so long? Well, I think we had a brief conversation over breakfast about this. It was principally because of their value proposition and the cost of, uh, to merchants, I think. Um, to be honest, you know, Acceptance equity isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. It's kind of a, you know, it's a bit of an 80-20 rule, right? So if you can get 80% of the volume with 20% of the merchants, why would you invest more? Uh, and that's, that has been China Union Pay's model. Yeah. So I would argue they're in a similar uh, boat. So I would say people would, you, you could make the argument that China Union Pay has sufficient acceptance for mm. uh, international acceptance, but their issuance is still significantly lower outside of the domestic market to the other international schemes. And financial will probably get there faster. To what degree is the power of the China spend outside of China mobilizing the e-payment options in Southeast Asia and around the world? Well, so like, there's two comments I would make on that. Um, first of all, Ant Financial's investment and, and, uh, and Tencent's investment in other entities. Uh, so one of the things... And, and let's just be clear for listeners. So, so Ant Financial is Alipay. So Ant Financial is part of the Alibaba group. Right. Alipay was the original name of Ant right. Financial. So Ant Financial, when they decided to become more than a payment scheme, to become a financial institution, became Ant Financial. Yeah. So uh, relatively recently, but it's been, been around for a while. So you, and, Alipay is definitely still the branding for payments. And 10 cents payment solution? Uh, is 10 pay. Uh, 
um, not as prolific uh, uh, outside of China, obviously, and uh, and I think to some extent they are focused on uh, the WeChat integration. Right. But let's just focus on, on on Alibaba for now because I guess they're just so much more prolific. But if you look at they essentially have a, a, a two-pronged approach to the market, and it's entirely based on their success in China. So first of all, um, if you look at AliExpress, uh, AliExpress is a merchant marketplace. Multiple Chinese merchants uh, using uh, Alipay or Ant Financial's payment capability and under a, what they call a master merchant agreement, basically. So and, and Financial essentially is the merchant, or Alibaba is the merchant. Uh, and all these guys sit under this umbrella and open up these uh, uh, you know, small and medium-sized merchants to the greater domestic China market and internationally. Uh, I'm, I'm entirely addicted to this solution. Merchant merchant places are very prolific in Asia in general, much more so than the rest of the world. Why is that? Explain that. It's a very good question. Probably uh, a lot of it has to do with just the sheer number of merchants um, and the, the uh, fact that there are so many markets. You know, I mean, look, you know, we talk about North America, but ostensibly it's, you know, three big markets and a smattering of smaller ones. Uh, you know, Amazon's volume dwarfs, you know, nearly every merchant in the world. But we, th we think of Amazon as, a, as a, a single merchant, but in reality, it's a merchant marketplace as well. So it, it definitely exists, but the sheer number of different merchant mar uh, marketplaces are much higher here. You know, you have um, AliExpress, you have Lazada, you have Q10, you have Shopee, you've got so many iterations of this. And a number of those uh, uh, merchant marketplaces have significant investment from Alibaba. Or in financial. So not only is Alibaba proliferating through its payments capability to cater at least to start to Chinese travelers, but they're investing in merchant marketplaces. And you can almost identify every single one they've invested in because not only are they putting money into them, but they're putting technology behind them. So they all look very similar. If you look at Lazada and AliExpress, you, you'd struggle to, uh, to, to uh, uh, differentiate their platforms look virtually similar mm. so that's how they're proliferating and and then let's let's come south now so from China and some of China's endeavors and some of its payment um, solutions uh, Southeast Asia uh, where it's more fragmented different currencies different systems different regulatory bodies um, there is, seems to be a surge in interest particularly at a Singapore as the hub for Southeast Asia on promoting new digital payment solutions what's going on now that didn't exist a year ago so, so Southeast Asia is kind of interesting. It's, it's partly an international phenomenon as well. The biggest challenge the payments industry has in Southeast Asia is domestic regulation. There is a pervasive perspective that a lot of money is leaving the market because of international schemes and non-domestic payment solutions. In fact, uh, what we're seeing is a couple of things, a push towards consolidation of technology within financial institutions that are quite fragmented within multiple business units, lots of technology, and a desire to get better total cost of ownership on their existing and new technologies. We're also seeing a couple of interesting mandates that are probably a long time coming, really. So there is a messaging type messaging platform called ISO 222. This is an XML-based, for, for the technology fans in the, market, uh, in the, in the universe, an XML-based um, ISO standard language. 
uh, that is common in, uh, in the commercial space for things like Swift um, and is the standard that a lot of the faster payments initiatives are based on. So for instance, uh, Singapore's uh, PayNow fast payment solution is an ISO 2022 uh, solution. Other solutions within financial institutions have also typically adopted those bulk payments, commercial payments, that sort of thing. So financial institutions are looking at ways to consolidate to single message formats and hopefully consolidate around technology as well. These solutions, however, most of the faster payment solutions are highly domestic. They um, focus on payments between consumers within a given market and businesses within a, a given market. And, and Singapore has been you know, has done a tremendous job in launching PayNow. Um, and they've integrated things like QR code payments into it, which is a, a really useful solution for um, uh, the B2B space, which has been struggling for adoption. What we're seeing in Southeast Asia is a desire to now integrate the domestic solutions cross-border. When, and and when, when that happens, that is a really interesting new universe. So the great connectors are these digital payment options. So these solutions themselves, what differentiates them, interestingly enough, what differentiates them from, for instance, um, sort of standalone fintech providers is there is an underlying technology that is either deployed by the market regulator or by a consortium within markets. Uh, and the idea there is to create a platform on which to innovate, if you like. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think when I was with MasterCard, I would argue against these things, but it's very hard to um, um, deny the potential for proliferation when a regulator, government, consortium, whatever it is, puts a platform in place, gets high adoption domestically, and then says, you know what, we should go to yeah. Thailand and connect, and Vietnam and connect, right. and they need to do the same thing domestically. Right. You know, that's an amazing potential, and I expect over the next five years, we're probably going to see more of that connectivity, and, and you know, I mean, if, if I may say so, international schemes, beware. So, so, um, so, so let's bring it down to what do corporations operating in this part of the world need to know? What should boards, what kind of questions should boards be asking right now, regardless of what industry they're in when it comes to digital payments? Well, so that's a big question, right? So if they're invested in technology that has any integration with payments, obviously their principal concern is going to be future-proofing and total cost of ownership. Mm. Um, if you're in the FSI space, you need to be thinking about how you're consolidating technology. There's a concept of straight through processing, uh, which goes back to that message format of ISO 222. How much can you do with a minimum amount of intervention? Um, how can you consolidate existing technologies? How can you either enhance the capability of legacy platforms by surrounding them with, uh, with uh, future-proof technology or replace them entirely if you need to? Mm. Those are the things they need to be thinking about. If you're not in, uh, in the FSI space and, for instance, you need to make a payment, well, merchants, people receiving payments, need to and always have been thinking about how can I get the most acceptance for the minimal amount of uh, technology investment. Mm. 
Uh, sorry, no, that, yeah, go ahead. Well, we, we also haven't talked, touched on uh, fraud. Uh, to what degree is that an issue in these markets uh, across Southeast Asia, and, and, and how effective are e-payments in um, uh, steering around that? Well, great question. So I think, you know, there are, are a lot of innovations in the digital space that go to mitigate against fraud. Risk in general is top of mind for most payments professionals and anybody that leverages electronic payments. The, there are a number of things that uh, are being looked at. You know, leveraging data is, of course, top of mind. Uh, data for insights, data for understanding, data for creating better rules to mitigate against fraud. You know, there's the, the old adage about in, in, in fraud mitigation that you can actually mitigate 100% of transactions. You just block everything, mm. right? Not a great business model, but, right. you know, there you go. Uh, there are tremendous innovations that uh, focus on sort of some specific problems that we've had in the industry, things like data breaches. So tokenization, uh, which essentially replaces data with something that is immaterial and, and irrelevant to anybody that actually does get a hold of the data. Um, the, the space is kind of interesting because I, I think anybody that has a history in risk and fraud management understands it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the, uh, the discussions right now aren't around so much prevention as they are risk mitigation and management when something does happen. Mm. And the principal concerns are data breaches. Mm. So when a data breach happens, what is the process for uh, identifying the breach and responding? Mm. A lot of companies don't uh, have a, have a, aren't prepared. They're, they don't have a, a, a process in place. They don't have a communications plan. Uh, they need to be considering it. Happily, there are some companies that they, that uh, provide that as an outsource service. You know, number one recommendation would be bigger, small company. Make sure that you have a plan. The other thing about fraud that's a principal concern is that everybody's getting smarter. Potentially anybody is a target, but what we're seeing in terms of fraud trends, and I, and I acknowledge I'm not a fraud expert, but what we're seeing in terms of trends is that smaller companies uh, are being leveraged as a conduit into larger ones. So for instance, a small company uh, might have a bit of malware embedded in the, uh, with the hopes that they'll ultimately be a, you know, a supplier uh, or a purchaser of a larger vendor, and, and then ultimately that malware makes its way through conventional methods, phishing and what have you. Backdoor. Backdoor, mm, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can't just be concerned about yourselves. You need to be concerned about what your impact on the world might mm. be. When you think three to five years out, are we looking at a, a surge in digital payment options or a shakeout? Well, so it depends on what part of the industry you're talking about. So clearly, we're already seeing a lot of consolidation. There's mergers, at, even at the highest uh, level, the largest industries. So I think there has to be some consolidation. There are too many players uh, providing too many layers. But look, the, the reality is, is that cash is still on the rise. Cards are still on the rise in terms of issuance. Um, and there's lots of space for digital payments to do more. The, the, the key will be uh, finding the killer uh, economic model. You know, typically the models are very transactional based. There are some that are trying subscription based models. Mo maybe most importantly, and this is always difficult for us payments professionals because of course we think everybody wakes up in the morning to make a payment, uh, is 
creating more opportunities like the Uber world and the Grab world and 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 uh, and the um, food delivery services like um, 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 you know Grab Food and uh, and what have you uh, to embed payments into the experience so it virtually disappears. Provision a payments choice once or twice, and then it becomes a essentially a foregone conclusion. Right. The more we can uh, develop those types of solutions, yeah. the, the the more it will proliferate. Yeah, like spend money while you sleep. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's a very comforting thought. It's yeah. terribly comforting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I say, say I'm an addict to AliExpress, of AliExpress. When I make, I mean, you're buying like two and three dollar items, you know, but you end up, you know, with a five hundred dollar bill at the end of the month. You're baffled of how that's possible, and the reality is, is just because the payments is embedded in the solution. You know, <laughs> so bolster those bank accounts, people, because uh, digital payments is coming. Right, Kerry. Yeah. Kerry, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Really, it was uh, it was really lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank we'll you. be back with you. Brilliant. That was my conversation with Kerry Hornfeld, Singapore-based digital payments professional. While Kerry does a commendable job navigating the murky waters of global payments and explaining what's been and what is yet to be, the value proposition for a future world of digital payments remains elusive to me. Like moving parts in a complex engine, I now understand the different layers required to make digital payments work. There's the network, for instance, that connects one financial institution to the next and allow payments to flow. There's the platform that handles the request, creates the messaging, and manages the data and reconciliations. At the merchant level, we have payment portals in an e-commerce world and readers in a store setting that capture credit card, QR, and barcode data to initiate a transaction. And lastly, there are the cards, payment apps, and stored value devices that we all carry around in lieu of cash. Across this payments value chain, we have different players playing different roles. But rather than getting less complex, it appears to be getting far more convoluted. For every new payment option, there's a merchant who needs to invest in a new reader, a new service, and a new fraud management solution to safeguard a business. From the consumer's perspective, as I mentioned in my conversation with Kerry, who really cares which payment solution is better than the next? Hell, I just want to pay and go. While on the one hand, it's good news that banks and regulators are loosening up and allowing for new and innovative players, on the other hand, there's the danger of too many players with too many options. It only takes one cop-up to screw it up for everyone else. One way or the other, we're headed for a shakeout. Until then, it's a land grab for a piece of the global payments pie. Since recording this interview, I've loaded onto my phone a half dozen digital apps and wallets, thinking to myself that maybe by testing them, I'll see for myself how one distinguishes itself from the other. There are somewhere around 50 digital payment providers in Singapore alone. Wherever I went, I flashed my apps with abandon. Coffee? Denied. Nasi goreng? No can do. A new pair of shoes? Just not possible. Do you take Alipay, Apple Pay, Catch Me, Fastacash, Payla, Liquid Pay? No, no, and no. Each time, disheartened, I'd reach for my wallet. Credit, I asked meekly, waving before the cashier a worn weathered Visa card. We prefer cash, would come the reply. If payments nirvana is the goal, which for me it is not, this leaves us with one or two choices. Option one, hold on to the ubiquitous credit card. Or option two, move to China. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. 
If you don't have time to listen but want a quick synopsis of our discussion and links to what we feel are some of the more responsible and informed articles, reports, and insights on the subject, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. To do that, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.